You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasa, your host, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, we would like to welcome you to our show this morning. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Kathy. How are you? All good? I just shut my, I just shut my picture off there for recording purposes. No, yeah, of course, and that's fine. I'm keeping well myself. Thank you. Good. Excellent. Yeah, I have to shut off my picture because the internet's a little shady sometimes up here. Recording from my bedroom studio. So on we go. Today's show obviously is being taped, so no opportunity for calling in. But please do subscribe to our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We are at the Health Hub RMC on all three locations. And we post lots of interesting things as well as our, our upcoming guests. So do, do take a look and take a follow. And if you want to or have a follow, and if you'd like to contact us directly, you can reach us on our email account, which is thh at radiomaria.ca. And please do subscribe to our podcast. We are the Health Hub on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, all of your favorite podcast platforms. And you can find our podcast on the Radio Maria Canada website, which is radiomaria.ca, and on my website, which is kathybsa.com. So today, Alex, we have Dr. Lenny Cohen on the show, and he's going to be talking to us about really interesting integrative therapies to uh, that he works with uh, that he uses with his patients for brain health, um, and so in in trying to keep apropos to the the theme, I came across um, a study, and then I followed up by reading an article. And this article was uh, written by someone at Harvard, and um, I'm not sure how it got into my radar, but uh, it was very interesting. And as someone who is north of 50, it gives me a lot of hope as far as brain health because um, aging, we, we consider as all completely negative and uh, memory loss is all a part of aging and all of that stuff, yada, yada. We're, we're, we're talked about it. Uh, we talk about it a lot. Um, right. But, you know, gone are the days now, you know, this, this, as this study came out and the report on it, gone are the days when scientists believe that, uh, you know, in the past, we reached our mental peak between 20 and 30, we kind of hovered around there for 10 years or so, and then things started to decline. So that's really not a very optimal and optimistic picture of brain health. That doesn't sound promising whatsoever. (laughs) Not at all. And uh, considering that probably the vast majority of people that are listening are upwards of 20, uh, it's it's hard to say that, uh, you know, it's hard to fathom that we've all reached our peak and are on the (laughs) way down. So um, things have evolved really quickly. And as we know, we talked to to Dr. Cohen uh, coming up in the show, 
you're going to see how science has helped uh, with the understanding of the brain, and, and really things are changing. But back to this study, scientists found that um, our brains are continually changing. That part isn't, isn't so novel, but they change across our entire lifespan. And during the process of change, some cognitive functions become weaker while others actually improve. So as we age, uh, parts of the brain like the hippocampus shrink, and this can result in our impact uh, to retrieve information, to remember things, so the memory mm -hmm. piece of, of the brain. But other physiological changes in our brain are actually strengthening as we age. Brain connections that enable us to um, become better at detecting relationships between things and seeing, you know, you know, getting a broad understanding of a situation. So basically seeing the forest, not the trees. So in other right. words, maybe as we're, as we're aging, and this really does make sense in the evolution of a person. We go to school when we're younger, we're, we're, we're taking in facts, we're, we're, we're creating a knowledge base. And it's seeming to be that as we age and as, you know, as life tends, we, we're not sitting studying, we're sort of implementing the knowledge that we, we have been getting or the the. the the bulk of the knowledge, you know, we're always hoping to learn, of course, and everything, but right. we're but more we're, implementing. Right. And, and we're seeing, as I said, the forest and not just the trees. Yes. And it, it, what this study tended to show that maybe this is the seedings of wisdom um, and that being able to step back and, and, and look at, at, a, at, a, at something and, and see the full picture as opposed to part of it is where wisdom may come from. And, and I found that to be very, very encouraging. Uh, we, as I said, we always tend to look at age. I mean, no one wants to get older, I suppose, but it's, it's not as negative as it, as it, it you know, as everyone has well, been making it out to be. Well, and, and the thing is, not to get too off topic, but, you know, in order for us to, um, you know, it, it, it's, 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 the aging process or the, the uh, privilege that it is to become an adult and, and live a full life has its, has, its, uh, has its great value. And you can only, you can only uh, gain experiences by living a long life. I don't know mm -hmm. if, if uh, you're kind of catching what I'm trying to uh, Yes, and, and, but, and you become knowledgeable, right? You're not, right. Uh, it's, it's, it's experiences and you're able to, it, it, it sort of aligns with our roles as we age. You know, as you become a parent, you're not sitting down studying math. You're trying to logicate with your kids, right? You're trying and to help your kid learn math. <laughs> and, yeah, yes. well, and we find that difficult. But Even yeah. those of us, or those people that are in the third, you can tell right now, you know, at the, this time when so many people are, your parents are trying to homeschool. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it, it's hard to learn, you know, teach a, a, an old dog new tricks sometimes. But as we're, as we're going and changing through our relationships, we have different roles that we play. Yeah. And as we and get it's older... Em it's, a, it's about embracing, embracing yes. th those roles. 
And, and it's, it's not necessarily, uh, you know, maybe we don't need to know facts as much as we get older. We need to be able to, to implement what we've learned and, and to take knowledge and impart knowledge. So I found that to be a very positive study, um, which, which leads into our show today a little bit. And our guest today is Dr. Lenny Cohen, and he's a top-ranked award-winning neurologist who leads the practice at Chicago Neurological Services in Chicago and Oak Park, Illinois. And Dr. Cohen is an expert physician who has spent more than a decade committed to personalized care that helps each of his Chicagoland patients understand their condition, feel their best, and live each day comfortably. He offers the latest technology for treatment and stays up to date with the latest research. He started his medical education in Russia, where he was born and raised. And at the age of 20, he moved to New York to pursue his passion for medicine. He earned his medical degree from the American University of the Caribbean School of Medicine in Saint Martin. And he completed his residency in neurology at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia, and as a diplomat of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. Since 2007, Dr. Cohen has been on staff at Rush Oak Park Hospital in Oak Park. He is highly respected amongst his peers and patients. And in addition to founding Chicago Neurological Services, Dr. Cohen is also the founder of Lakeshore Hyperbaric Center in Chicago. Dr. Cohen's quality of care has been recognized with numerous honors, including the Patient's Choice and On-Time Doctor Awards. Dr. Cohen uses advanced science and a devotion to personalized care to offer men and women a unique approach focused on their long-term health and well-being. His focus is merging traditional medicine with alternative therapy. He's fluent in Russian as well as English and welcomes new patients to his Chicago Neurological service, uh, Services. And Dr. Cohen has recently released an ebook entitled Modern Brain Longevity, Understanding Brain Health in a Complex World. And, and this is the basis of our, our conversation. It's, um, we're going to go through what Dr. Cohen does in his work with patients. So some of the learning points that will be uncovered is how oxidative stress promotes aging. We're going to discuss some of the novel integrative therapies that Dr. Cohen uses to promote brain health. And we're going to talk about physical therapy for the brain and if it's actually really a thing, which, as you will find out, is. So we will be talking to Dr. Cohen in a few minutes. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song, this cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when striving cease, my comforter. My all and all Here in the love of Christ I stand In Christ alone 
You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. As I mentioned earlier, today's show is being taped, so no opportunity for calling in. But please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, as I mentioned, and we're at The Health Hub RMC on all three locations. Dr. Cohen, thank you so much for coming to the show. I really appreciate you taking your time to do this. Kathy, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's an interesting angle that you come at, tackling the area of brain health and neurological issues. Let's set up your story. How did you get into this line of, of medicine? Well, a number of years ago, uh, when I was a little child, I um, injured myself. Coming from a family of number of physicians, I really did not envision myself anything but being a physician, despite my parents wanting me to be somebody else. Um, and going into med school, I really saw myself as being a neurosurgeon. After doing three months of grilling neurosur- well, surgical and neurosurgical rotations, I understood this is not exactly my forte. And I looked into alternative and I thought, well, you know what, neurosurgery, neurology must be something similar. And that's how I became a neurologist. I've been practicing neurology since 2007 in a lovely city of Chicago. Um, and as I was developing into uh, my practicing habits, I start to look into what is the most precious organ that we all have and do not cherish much, which is your brain. So that's 
pretty much how I start to practice what I practice now. If you look at the history of guests we've had on the show, especially this past year, there has been such a strong inclination towards mental health, aging, neurology, the brain. And I think it's because this is really, we've been, you know, not we, but doctors, researchers have been studying it for years, but there seems to be within these last 10 years, a real breakthrough in either the understanding or the approach to dealing with the brain. How have you seen since 2007, how have you seen the theory of aging, the approach to dealing in mental health, how has that evolved or changed so much so that it's shaped to who you are and how you practice today? Well, Kathy, you're absolutely right. It's like approach to medicine altogether changed dramatically. If you think about the past and even current practicing habits, and we still live in a society of what we call reactive medicine, meaning that you have a boo-boo, you go to doctor. Otherwise, you don't really think about anything preventive-wise. As a population in the United States as well as in the world is aging, and we're pretty much facing the fact that we're going to have more and more uh, baby boomers who will be hitting their 60s and 70s very soon, we understand the need of assessing preventive measures. And preventive measures have been evaluated for some time, specifically in the primary care medicine, you know, to, to evaluate somebody's blood pressure, cholesterol, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Only lately, in the last 10 years or so, uh, we start to think about preventive measures for um, brain function. Um, and this is what uh, probably what I advocate quite a lot because if we do not do something preventively, it's very difficult to fix something versus prevent it from happening in the first place. And this isn't just in the brain, right? We're seeing this all over medicine, preventative medicine for health, preventative medicine for the cost of the health system. There are so many reasons why we want to be in this space of prevention. And Almost there's a theory, you know, we talk about mental health, we talk about brain health, but it's healthy mental health and healthy brain health that I think you people that are coming forward in, in neurology and in psychiatry are really starting to advocate for. There was always this disassociation between the, rain, the brain and the rest of the body. And even in just in my, my practice working with cancer patients, I speak to positive thinking and things like that and associating the, the brain with the rest of the body. When it comes to prevention, how early are you talking about in, in someone's life? Where are you trying to focus? Well, that's a million-dollar question because that pretty much takes us to the origin of theory of aging. Why are we getting older? Why some people do pretty well in their 90s and yet we have somebody in 50s or 60s and they already look like they're 90 years old or they act like they're 90 years old. Um, there are a number of different theories about why we age, how we age. Um, a couple theories, one probably the most um, prominent is uh, that it's based on a genetical code that we have cells that pretty much pre-programmed to die and after a specific number of divisions, they will die. And that's why we eventually uh, stop replicating some of our tissues and under undergo atrophy, etc. Another theory that is rather interesting, and I think that we definitely see 
why it becomes so popular in the last 50 years is a theory of oxidative stress, which pretty much postulates that there's an oxidative stress that's happening in our body at any given time, and it's not a bad thing. The bad thing that happens is when the balance of oxidative stress is damaged and you have more the so-called radicals that start to attack your body versus your uh, pretty much protective uh, mechanism in your body that will protect you from that uh, to happen in the first place. And as that happens, um, those radicals start to affect your mitochondria, which is responsible for production of energy. As mitochondria start to produce less energy, you start to develop some symptoms of the fatigability, um, problems with processing information, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the whole question is, why is it happening? And considering the changes in environmental factors, the changes in our dietary supply, I can see why oxidative stress becoming such a popular theory and it's most likely truly does contribute to a lot of patients, especially those who don't eat well, who are exposed to some toxins, etc. You're putting people's health in their hands to to some degree. Um, This idea, and I've seen it with so many experts in, in your field and other fields, bringing to the forefront for people that your health is in your hands. You can't blame it on genetics. Yes, there are some genetics that are involved, but we do have a place in achieving good health. Is that one of the things you're trying to focus on with your patients, with your integrative therapies? Yes, and so you are absolutely correct. I mean, so there are probably a handful of conditions where you cannot really change your genetical code. And unfortunately, if it happened to you, you will have such problem. Like, for example, a child with Down syndrome cannot really change that abnormal mutation that happened. And they will develop this amyloid plaque in the brain and all other um, abnormalities that uh, happen in patients with such condition. A healthy individual, on another hand, most likely has a normal genetical code, which throughout the life will be attacked by many different mechanisms by, like, once again, either exposure to some environmental toxins or to what we eat. You know, it's like when they say you are what you eat, it's actually a quite correct statement. Um, We have a lot of data which pretty much saying that eating only meat will increase your oxidative stress, stress in the body. There was very interesting data coming out of the United Kingdom not long time ago, just a few weeks, that says that abnormal um, levels of iron are being strongly correlating with patients with dementia. And in my personal interpretation of that study is that iron is very strongly corresponds with oxidative stress. And most likely it's, like once again, the reason is not the iron itself that does that, but it's oxidative stress that triggering iron um, to produce those free radicals that start to attack your body. Is it the connection with meat? The iron yes. and the meat? Okay, Correct. interesting. Who are your patients? Well, I, as a practicing neurologist, I pretty much am an adult neurologist, so I see anyone from 16 to 100 plus years old. Um, in, besides seeing patients with neurological conditions, that can range anything from headache to stroke to Parkinson's and multiple sclerosis. My personal interest is with brain aging. And it's probably started, unfortunately, with my father suffering from rapidly progressing 
Alzheimer's dementia, which pretty much took his life in a very short period of time. Uh, and that's what pushed me into learning what alternatives are out there. And um, I'm trying, I'm not going necessarily just to alternative medicine, and I'm not practicing just Western medicine. I try to bring the best of two worlds together to benefit my patients. So my patients are those who, number one, interested in doing well in their life. Number two, those who um, share my vision that you need to start intervention rather earlier than later. It's very difficult for me to see somebody who already have dementia. I keep telling my patients that I compare dementia to having a house full of termites. When you have a house full of termites, and if you already have damage done to the foundation, and your general contractor probably can fix some of the things. Unfortunately, we do not have general contractor for the body. You cannot fix things that are already broken. But what we can do is prevent it from happening in the first place. So my ultimate patient is somebody who cares about themselves. Have you seen um, an increase in your patient base with the people that are trying to prevent aging? Are you able to hit, you know, maybe your, for instance, in your situation, your father had Alzheimer's. Are you seeing the children of, of people like this coming in and working preventatively with you? That is probably one of the bigger group of people who come to us. And I do not want to say that it's a fear that uh, moves them, but most of the time it's recognition of the problem that hits you so close to your home. And you know, let's be honest, we expecting to see 15 million plus people with Alzheimer's dementia alone. Alzheimer's is not the only type of dementia that's affecting us. It's like it's only about 60% of dementia. It's, we have different, other different types of dementia, especially body dementia, Parkinson's dementia, etc. So we're not talking about only 15 million people. We're talking about 20 million people in the next few years will be occupying the United States who have dementia. So obviously those who live with those people, with those patients, they recognize that you know, they should be doing something early in their life to prevent it from happening. So you started your practice in, would you call it a, a traditional setting? Correct. And then, and then you moved on to open your own practice. How have the two differed? Yeah, so they're really not. I would like to think that my traditional practice is just kind of morphed into something more elaborate. Um, like once again, a few years ago when uh, my father, you know, it's like, uh, like once again, it's very sad, but uh, he was coming to my wedding and he had a hard time recognizing who I am, which truthfully is really heartbreaking for any child. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I started to look for something. And the first thing that I was um, looking into uh, at that time, vitamin supplements, is there anything that can be done? And you know, like that was 10 or so years ago. And now you know, it's like looking around, it's like there's probably no store that does not carry some sort of vitamins um, that have a claim that it benefits your brain uh, cognition. I, I find it very heartening that you're doing this type of work, and we're going to get into it in the second half, the different therapies that you are using. Still, there are physicians, people in the medical field who discredit supplements as a whole. And I like the fact that you are incorporating these different modalities, not forsaking the Western world, but tending to use these different modalities to support maybe the more Western protocols that you would, that you would give a patient. Have you seen good response in comparison uh, to when you were not using these new therapies? 
Yes and no. I think that we're still in a very infantile development of understanding what's going on with our patients. And um, just blindly using any sort of supplement as well as a medication, really not going to do anything for the patient. We need to be able to understand what patients have disease-wise and how we can change it. So as I always tell my patients, there's not one medication or therapeutic procedure that helps 100% of the time to 100% of the patients. It just does not exist. Um, maybe in medieval times, like they use holy water for that, but let's be honest. But, um, nowadays, you know, like we try to use knowledge of biochemistry, uh, genetical mutations, et cetera, in order to help our patients. So some patients will benefit from that. And once again, we're talking about early intervention. Mm-hmm. If somebody's brain underwent changes that now we look at MRI, for example, and we see atrophy of the brain, uh, which is just shrinkage of the size, you cannot fix it. That brain tissue is gone. And we can talk about how you can still do maybe a few things to benefit those patients. But like once again, I, I know that I'm going to sound like a broken record, but it's all about preventive measures, like doing something early instead of doing something later. Of course. And I, you know, that, that's, that's the onus. You're putting the onus on the individual and that's where it should be. And I think that when people really do start to understand that they should be talking to their physicians, talking to their doctors, working out a plan together, this is when we're truly going to see, you know, the rubber hit the road. What you're talking about is personalized medicine. Absolutely correct. Exactly. So what I want to do here is take a break and then I want to give you ample time to talk about these great therapies that you're using with your patients so that our listeners have a voice to speak with when they may be considering working on their own brain health and mental health. So everybody, we'll be back in a few minutes. There's no space that his love can't reach There's no place where we can't find peace There's no end to amazing grace Take me in with your arms spread wide Take me in like an orphan child Never let go
You are listening to The Health Hub here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, email thh at radiomaria.ca. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We're talking with Dr. Lenny Cohen here about aging, mental health, neurology. And Dr. Cohen has some very unique, integrative, interesting therapies that I, I want to give him a lot of space to talk about here. So let's start with imaging, Dr. Cohen, because that probably is the one that most people are familiar with. Um, what do you do in your clinic with regard to imaging and how is it different? Well, let's start with imaging that is commercially available for our patients. So one of them is MRI that everybody is aware of, everybody wants to have, and nobody really understands except radiologists and doctors who look at those MRIs. Um, and MRI is a wonderful technique, but the only problem with that is that it looks at um, brain anatomy, but it does not really look at brain functionality. Mm-hmm. So when you look at MRI, all I can say if if there is a brain, and if brain is damaged, and that's it. But I cannot really draw any conclusions about any issues with the brain unless something already happened, like atrophy. Some other techniques that have been used in a lot of neurological offices is EEG, or electroencephalogram, which is a wonderful tool that evaluates if patient does or does not have seizures. EEG is taking on slightly different levels, something called QEG, or quantitative EEG. That's something that we do use in our office, and that is, <clears throat> so that is rather interesting um, approach to EEG. Uh, we're still collecting data from electrical activity of the brain, but then it's being um, interpreted with a very complex mathematical algorithm, which does not evaluate only um, discharges of neurons that are close to each other, but it's, like I'm comparing that as regular EEG as two-dimensional and quantitative EEG as a three-dimensional, because quantitative EEG is taking um, evaluation of the whole brain. And that's where it's giving you a better understanding of how brain is functioning and which portion of the brain is overactive or hypoactive or normal. Um, There are a couple other techniques that we're currently not using, but uh, we have some clinics that we can refer patients out for that. One of them is a SPECT imaging, which is old uh, techniques, but what it does is allows us to see metabolic rate of the brain. Uh, Patients are getting glucose that is being traced with radioactive um, compounds, and then we're looking like how brain is processing that uh, radioactive glucose if there are any portions of the brain that do not do it correctly. And um, such abnormalities can be seen in patients who had traumatic brain injuries, patients who had stroke, um, even patients who had um, who have the disease like Alzheimer's dementia or any other neurodegenerative condition. So we're using all of these techniques to evaluate and draw the picture of what is going on with a patient. Um, I'll give you an example. I recently had a patient with severe anxiety who came being absolutely convinced that she has dementia. And I was probably number four doctor who saw her. And although upfront I was able to tell her that it does not sound like dementia, but we were able just to demonstrate her objectively that she does not have dementia, that all her findings are consistent with anxiety. We were able to convince her to take appropriate medications, and she's doing much better now. 
Mm-hmm. So it's a matter of they're making correct diagnosis before you start to treat somebody. Uh, shooting from the hip with different drugs is not always a good idea as every medication does have a side effect. And we want to be sure that we treat correct patient with a correct medication. I have a question. Um, in my introduction, I talked about, um, which you haven't heard yet, I talked about the the new idea that as we age, yes, our brain changes. Yes, certain areas like the hippocampus become smaller. Um, but our memories, our memories and other connections also change. And my question is for you, as, as science is finding out these things, we age, we change. But just because things change doesn't necessarily mean it's worse. It can be different. And when you're looking at imaging, how can you account for that information? Am I coming? Am I clear? I believe that I can understand what you're asking about. So you bring a very interesting question, changes in a brain and changes in a brain happening from um, our birth and um, myelination of the brain happening in the first couple of years, even um, activity of the brain like electro encephalogram of the child will not look the same as of an adult. It will take at least first seven to eight years before we're going to see normal EEG activity of the child uh, compatible to adult. Um, changes in the brain, it, like once again, we can break it down to two different things, anatomical changes versus actual changes in connections in the brain. And that's what I'm more interested Anatomical changes are secondary. They usually happen if something goes wrong. Um, you know, it's like in the very beginning, once again, in childhood development, we have this myelination, but after that, we just start to have um, changes in the brain if we have any sort of trauma, stroke, um, some autoimmune conditions, etc. But connections within neurons, that's what brings a very interesting thought and theory of neuroplasticity, meaning that we have neuronal cells that connect with each other. And think about this as an infrastructure of the town. Um, Let's say you have a bunch of roads that are connected and they provide transportation for all citizens of that town. What happens if you will double the number of the roads? Will that information flow more freely? Well, in brain um, case, it would be information in a town case example, it would be more the cars, but like sticking to the brain, will that information just flow freely from one part of another to another one? And it seems to be a case. There was a very interesting study out of United Kingdom. Uh, they, the cabbies in United, uh, in London, actually required to learn the map of the London and then have to take a written exam. So during the time, while well, they study the map and memorize it, they actually were able to demonstrate that activity of the frontal lobe in those people, all of them actually increase dramatically. And um, that's what I tell to all my patients, those who come and say, well, I don't remember stuff anymore. I cannot memorize it. We all pre-program to do things when we're younger, but how many of us try to memorize the lengthy passages of whatever material as we like finish with college or finish with whatever education that we have? We pretty much stuck with whatever information that we have and we just utilize it. So we're not training our brain anymore. So developing those connections is very, very important. And seeing it in any sort of imaging, I think that the couple images that you you can 
do that. One of them is quantitative EEG and another one is functional MRI. And functional MRI is specifically showing um, anatomical connection from one portion of the brain to another one. And quantitative EEG, EEG just shows electrographic connection between all neurons in the brain. And they both serve their specific purpose. It's it the the study that um, I talked about beginning of the show was very interesting and it was like it was these connections and it was different ways the brain changes and they pointed to the effect that as we're younger we need to sort of acquire this information as we're older we see more of the bigger picture so um, it, it's not the trees now we're seeing the forest and we're using this information more towards wisdom versus factual I, I found it very interesting and I and and you know the theories of aging we always think that aging is so negative. But aging, healthy aging, is a change and not always necessarily for the worst. I, I just, uh, I think aging is given a real bad rap in some things. But to, to these imaging things, as, as you scientists and doctors are understanding the, the brain, I imagine that these images, how you look at them from 20 years ago and now, are completely different with what you might read. But that's an interesting point that uh, that you brought up, and uh, it fit in very well with what I talked about at the beginning. But anyways, let's talk about more of the integrative therapies. So you've got the HBOT, you've got um, IV therapies, and, and you talked about nutrition. So these are all things that I guess you studied outside of your neurology course. Correct. In uh, my textbook of medicine, well, there's not one textbook, but... Um, like, for example, about hyperbaric medicine, there's one sentence about this whatsoever. That's it. Um, and um, the more I learn about hyperbaric medicine, the more fascinated uh, that topic is. Um, as for any sort of integrative medicine, they don't even teach it in med school as of right now. And probably it will change in the future. But, yes, it takes a curious mind to go outside of the box, outside of the norm that you were taught during uh, medical school and residency and do something. And you know, so we do have plenty of doctors who do this now. What is the hyperbaric th HBOT therapy? Can you explain that to everybody? Yeah, absolutely. So th this is not exactly something brand new. The first um, hyperbaric therapy is defined as treatment with 100% um, oxygen under pressure higher than normal. So there's a very basic physics law that says that with increased pressure, you can have more gases dissolved in a tissue. In this case, the gas is oxygen, and with pressure higher than normal, um, there's assumption that would be more oxygen dissolved in the tissue, and that will um, improve oxygenation or super-oxygenation of the body, which truthfully is... Um, very correct. And there were some studies done in uh, 60s where that demonstrated that if you will increase the pressure to 3ATA or equivalent to putting somebody to 60 um, feet under the water, that um, you will have enough oxygen dissolved in your body that you do not need any red blood cells at that time. And that will be pretty much able to uh, sustain your life. There's even a book written, I believe it's called uh, Life Without Blood. Mm. Um, well, we don't do some such drastic things of taking mm. somebody's blood, but um, the interesting information you know, that coming out of study with hyperbaric medicine and um, brain, um, there's some investigational data that shows that it helps kids with autistic spectrum disorder, it helps people with a stroke recovery, um, some Animal studies demonstrated that it even destroys amyloid plaque in um, those uh, animals who um, were genetically 
know, it's designed to have that amyloid plaque like you see in Alzheimer's dementia. Um, it's also um, one of the biggest things that I like about this. Um, one of the studies demonstrated that it's decreasing inflammatory markers, specifically IL-6, um, as well as tumor necrosis factors. And there are some uh, doctors, including me, who believe that most of the diseases that we have in our body are either a product of inflammation or they cause inflammation on their own, and that's why we have symptoms. Um, we do know that um, like there are a lot of um, data now coming with something called microglial activation in the brain, which are cells that normally protect your brain, but in some conditions, like with uh, stroke, with um, traumatic brain injury, they can be activated and they go in hyperactive mode and then they just start to attack its own uh, tissues around. And by doing that, you can develop a lot of different symptoms, including sluggishness, forgetfulness, etc. And um, that's probably a reason how hyperbaric therapy is working for some of those cases like uh, traumatic brain injury and um, some of the aging abnormalities. Um, but once again, the um, hyperbaric therapy existed on the market for quite some time. It probably picked out in um, like 20s and 30s when oxygen was, uh, when scientists were able just to separate oxygen and were able to provide oxygen. Then it picked out again in 60s and 70s. And now we see resurrection of this again with some very interesting data pointing out that it can be beneficial for some condition like fibromyalgia, um, complex regional pain syndrome, uh, potentially for aging because it does improve cardiovascular system altogether. So it's a fascinating thing to do and to provide for our patients. So reducing systemic inflammation is, is key in that area. Um, now you do IV therapies and you do something called neurofeedback. Yes, let's start with neurofeedback because we just talked about the QEG and neurofeedback is pretty much extension of that. Um, if you think about the brain, it's an organ that has um, electrical activity as well as biochemical activity. Pharma industry in 70s and 80s just jumped on the biochemical activity and developed a number of different medications that are being used by psychiatrists and neurologists. The one thing that was forgotten is that in order for any of these biochemical elements to be released from neuronal uh, ending, you actually need to have electrical activity to trigger it. Um, and that's where we're coming in. Brain has a number of different waves, and that we can train those waves to um, pretty much to do what we want them to do. For example, we can train some um, activity like alpha or theta activity so you can be a little bit more calm, or we can increase your beta activity you know, for you to be a little bit more on the uh, alert and uh, more able to study something. So it's like I compare um, neurofeedback to physical therapy for the brain. And um, it does take time. This is not something that you can come and just get it done. But this is pretty much treatment from within. We do not use drugs for this. Um, all what happened is that we are reading your electrographic activity of the brain, and this is providing a neurofeedback to you uh, as you're visually looking at a screen and a screen-changing uh, patients, the beautiful thing about this, patients don't have to do anything about this. The brain is doing all the work behind the curtain. 
but it takes some time before it will change to the, for the better. Interesting. Interesting. And then where do IV therapies fit in and all the different uh, cocktails? So IV therapy is like fitted as a um, complementary for like once again, what, just to go back about how do we do things. And it's like we do not blindly treat our patients you know, it's like using the same protocols for everybody. Everything what we do is pretty much customizable and we try to be sure that uh, we do something for each patient. And um, data that we use is either coming from some research that is being done or sometimes it's even maybe was positive research in animal studies, but we did not really have any human studies on a big scale yet. And um, so, like, for example, um, infusion of compounds like phosphatidylcholine is, seems to be beneficial for people who had stroke and it demonstrated that it's decreasing the size of the stroke. Um, infusions of something like alpha-lipoic acid, which is a very strong antioxidant, seems to be beneficial for patients who have traumatic brain injury, once again, going back to this glial activation and having inflammatory response. Um, we do provide vitamin supplementations as well, but this is probably a very small portions of what we do. Most of the supplements that we provide is purely based on um, it, either amino acids or something else that can be beneficial for our patients. One of those very interesting compounds is NAD+. Um, it actually stands for nicotinamine adenine dinucleotide, which is definitely a mouthful. <laughs> but that is a very interesting compound because you remember we were talking about how cells pre-programmed to die. So what this compound does, and this is actually derivative of vitamin B3. So what it does, it's actually tricking your cells into keep replicating. So some people calling it fountain of youth. I'm not really, I'm like, I don't like to like call things um, just with some cliche names of some sort, but um, if it truly allows cells to replicate, um, it does provide a very strong benefit for anti-aging. Um, and there is some data about um, NAD plus helping patients with addictions, patients with some psychological diseases, as well as patients with some neurological conditions. Um, it's definitely been investigated quite a lot in the last 10 years, and a lot of studies that were done, they were um, very, very um, beneficial, including like, to the point there was a study not long time um, done with uh, mice for fertility, with uh, supplementation of NAD plus um, help with fertility for um, all the mice. So we take some of the data from animal studies and we try to see if we can replicate it um, for our patients. And obviously the most important thing is what we do, we want to be sure that it's safe for patients. It does no harm. But if we can help somebody by doing this experimental therapy, so be it. Absolutely. And again, this is integrative medicine. This is using hopefully the best of all worlds. And I think it's, it's so... Um, again, I talked I talk to experts like you, and it's so refreshing to see this being introduced into areas where traditionally there hasn't been a whole lot of integrative work. Now, you have a great ebook that goes through a lot of, or most everything that we've talked about here. Where can people get this ebook to learn more about your therapies, more about you, how to contact you? Oh, it's available for free as a download from our website. Um, 
the website is www.therevivedoc.com. You can find some information about, um, well, you can find like that book, you can find some information about what we do. Um, we always, <clears throat> excuse me, um, sometimes it just, you know, it's like, uh, you cannot get all information online. Sometimes we do ask patients to come for consultation just to be sure that we provide adequate information. And, um, you know, it's like we, like one of the beautiful things about my staff is that we open seven days a week. So I treat my patients like I want to be treated. And a lot of our patients, they, they're working. You know, it's like, you know how difficult it is to take time off. Um, so that's why, although I'm not in the office seven days a week, uh, I think that would be ground for divorce from my wife. <laughs> but um, my staff is, and, you know, it's like I always see my patients, you know, it's like to make a decision to discuss because, you know, it's like, let's be honest, educated consumer is the best consumer. If we can discuss what's the right thing to do for someone, um, they're more likely to adhere to that and they're more likely to benefit from that versus somebody who you just blindly give them a pill and say, just take it and you will be better. I agree. And I think when we're invested in our health, it does do everything that you've said, compliance and benefits. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Um, I just love to see progression in the areas of health like you're showing. Uh, Everybody, um, we will talk to you next week on the Health Hub. Dr. Cohen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.